the thing to do is to make sure that you are trustworthy and to do everything that you can to ensure that you have and are presenting the characteristics that should suggest to a trustor that you can be trusted. Welcome to the Social Science for Public Good podcast, a project of the Virginia Tech Institute for Policy and Governance and VT Publishing. In this series, we attempt to make social science theory available and accessible for social change practitioners, such as activists, nonprofit leaders, and government officials. My name is Brad Stevens. And I'm Yugasha Bakshi. We're both PhD students in the Planning, Governance, and Globalization program in the School of Public and International Affairs at Virginia Tech, interested in the question of how to build a better world. Wow, you gosh, it's uh it's been five episodes. We're on number six here. Uh, we've dealt a lot with trust. Are you? Uh, uh, do you trust me that this was a good idea at this point? I suppose we verified at this point, but uh, <laughs> I hope you'll trust me if I if I uh, suggest another idea moving forward. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, and I know I've said this multiple times by now, but I continue to be amazed by the amount of work that has gone um, into theorizing trust and it has been very useful for me and I've been sort of connecting the dots since the beginning how you know different guests have uh, defined trust and how that understanding might have helped me in the past um, in my in my career Um, and I'm going to admit this Brad but you have turned me into a trust enthusiast so (laughs) well uh, welcome it Uh, excited (laughs) to have you on the bandwagon with me here well, how are you feeling? Last one before we wrap up our trust piece. Um, and I bet you could do this every day. I, you know, I really enjoy these conversations. Um, I really enjoy a good conversation with anyone, but the chance to talk to these people that I admire so much and I've read so much of their work has just been uh, phenomenal. And I think it's really deepened my experience here. You know, I think in, in academia, there's an assumption that you produce the paper and that's enough on some level. And I really want to encourage folks to think beyond that, particularly in some of these places where there are such clear real world applications. And I think it's just in some of these conversations, we've heard people talking about things in ways that they might not, they might not comfortably talk about in an article because they'd have to cite resources and Mm -hmm. everything else for it. And I don't, um, I don't want everybody to go willy-nilly and just be speaking off the cuff about everything. But I think it's helpful to kind of know beyond just the pieces that we see out in the world how these people are thinking about these ideas. Yep. Well, so just to take us back here, you know, we started with introducing trust. We moved on to talk a little bit about trustworthiness. We've talked a little bit about types of trust and, and trust repair once there's been a violation. And then this idea of political trust as a particular domain Today we're going to be dealing with kind of big picture stuff, looking back across all of this as well as looking forward into the future of trust research. But is there anything in particular that stood out to you at this point, you guys, or any big questions that you have as we kind of look ahead? Uh, I'd have to say the application of trust and um, uh, its application in different fields and how, you know, different it looks. Um, And trust really does find application literally everywhere and which is what makes it all the more intriguing. And I'm interested in seeing where this might go and if it is going to evolve into other areas. 
Absolutely. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I think today's guest will help us look at even more of those ways that this is applicable out there. We're going to be talking with Dr. Joe Hamm, who's an associate professor at Michigan State School of Criminal Justice. He also works in the environmental science and policy program there, as well as the Department of Political Science. But he's kind of at the forefront and looking at all these different places where this work is happening. But uh, are we ready to chat with Dr. Hamm here? Let's go ahead. Very good. Well, welcome, Dr. Ham. Thank you so much for joining us on the Social Science Republic Good Podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation. Absolutely. Well, you know, I've, uh, as a trust researcher, I'm, uh, I'm excited to, to be chatting with you today. And, you know, you've written kind of broadly on this. I know you've touched in criminal justice areas as well as environmental areas and legitimacy and, and political trust, all these kind of domains. But, you know, can you share a little bit about what's kind of sparked your interest in this field of study and why it continues to be of interest to you? No, absolutely. Um, so I started graduate school with uh, confident that I was going to be moving in a jury decision-making direction. Um, I was really, really interested in the intersection between specifically trained government actors and then the public. Um, and I really thought of that as a jury decision-making type of what kind of factors change, how certain juries make their decisions. Um, and one of the first things that I got kind of assigned to as a graduate student was a project looking at um, how reminders might change defendants' willingness to appear in court, which was vaguely related to the area, but it seemed kind of in that court space that I was excited about. Uh, and my first task on that project was to go find a measure of trust. And that took me, I want to say 10 years. It took me about 10 years to get to a place where I felt like I found what was actually a good measure. There was just such a conversation about whether it's confidence or legitimacy or trust and then what factors and what dimensions that that research group basically kind of got derailed. Um, we finished the, the failure to appear project, but we just started spending the next 10 years or so trying to figure out what trust is, how you should measure it, what its dimensions look like, why it is legitimacy or not legitimacy or similar to confidence or not like confidence. Um, so I was hooked. I was hooked on this, um, on this graduate student assignment to go, what we all thought would be fairly quick, that I'd just go find this measure, bring it back, and we'd use it. Um, turned into a career, and I just haven't been able to leave since. Could you elaborate on that uh, a bit for us? Uh, how do you define trust and what, according to you, is a good measure of it? I can, um, and I will absolutely recognize from the outset that there are different schools of thought on this, um, but I will die on the hill that it is um, a willingness to accept vulnerability um, but specifically vulnerability to the, the agency of the trustee. So um, the way that I usually explain the way I think about trust, I, I ask people to just think about a trust fall. And then the reality that the person who's falling backwards has given up some level of their control over their ability to uh, protect themselves. So we're not going to fall if we just keep standing. But if we, we are comfortable in the act of falling backwards, We've given someone else the opportunity to do something that might hurt us or not do something that um, might protect us from being hurt. And if we feel comfortable with that, so it's not the act of falling, but it's the fact that that person feels comfortable in falling, um, that is what I think of as trust. It's that willingness to accept it. Um, there are some people that then add to it a, uh, that it's based on positive expectations. So I'm comfortable because I think things are going to go well and going, falling backwards. 
I think that's usually the case, um, but I'm not as comfortable leaving that as a definition because I do think there are cases where we don't think things are going to go well, but we do feel comfortable doing it. Some level of motivation, some level of desire for the relationship, something like that. Uh, but what all of that means for measurement is that um, I think probably the most common way that people measure trust after just the words, do you trust, um, is something about the characteristics that make the other thing seem worthy of being trusted. Um, I pretty, pretty intentionally and pretty exclusively try and shift that focus to that feeling of comfort or that feeling of willingness in the face of some sort of vulnerability. So I like items that use things like, you know, how comfortable are you with the fact that this thing could hurt you or that this thing has authority or that this thing could take over a situation that you care about. Um, I tend to focus on measures, um, often use that comfort word as I, I just think it's a good way to, to get at when you're falling backwards in that trust fall. Are you comfortable? Are you scared? Are you anxious? You know, what, what's actually going on in your head? But, you know, I'm intrigued to, to take a step back here. You mentioned that there's all these kind of uh, other things that play into it. You mentioned legitimacy and, and things like that. Can you talk a little bit about the connection that you see between those uh, domains and trust in, in particular? Sure, sure. So legitimacy is probably the one I've written and read the most about at this point. Um, and legitimacy is typically talked about as a right to rule. Um, so... Trust can definitely exist in those kind of power differentials, but I think legitimacy only really exists in this in the situation where there is some sort of a power differential. The reason power matters is because it creates vulnerability, so it's not that different in terms of the context that they matter in. But usually if you use the word legitimacy, you're talking about an authority of some sort, and you're talking about that authority's ability to, to do things, um, to create these demands for social compliance or for a direction or coordinating people and moving in a direction. Um, and so I tend to think of legitimacy as a little bit more of an umbrella term um, and that many things go into this idea of legitimacy, one of which is trust. And so it's probably difficult to really accept that something should have the right to rule over you when you don't feel willing to accept the vulnerability that that creates, it's just that the cognitive dissonance involved in saying, yeah, you should do it and you're probably going to hurt me in the process feels tough. Um, but I do think that as you're measuring it, when you're trying to get at legitimacy, you're trying to get at, should they have control? And then trust you're trying to get at, do I feel comfortable with the fact that that control means I could be hurt? I know I've read, I've read and written a little bit less on confidence. Uh, but that one I think of as the expectations part. And that's part of the reason why I like pulling that based on positive expectations out of confidence. Because if I just have positive expectations about what's going to happen, I'm really not thinking about or considering um, the vulnerability piece of it, or that really has nothing to do with it. I'm really talking about my confidence about those expectations. I was going to ask you that, your domain of work has uh, been in criminal justice and you've looked at how trust impacts that field of work. Could you share a bit about that? Absolutely. Um, so I was, the, the program that I joined in graduate school was a law psych program. Um, the idea was to, to, to train students both in psychology and law at the same time with the goal of setting them up to use psychology to answer legal questions. 
So when I graduated, I was deep in the courts world in particular and, and thinking in particular about legitimacy at that point and confidence in the courts. Um, coming into MSU, I started to pick up a little bit more of a focus on policing itself. Um, but the way that that has kind of served within my career, um, the, the relationship between the public and really the entire criminal justice system is one that's not too difficult for people to really wrap their heads around. So even if you're talking about a context where um, you know, this is someone who's never actually interacted with a police officer, never been to court, never been um, in corrections of any sort, it's not that difficult to conceptualize the power, the power differential, the control, the potential for harm, like all of the real contours we think about in a really rich trust relationship are pretty easy to conceptualize within the criminal justice context. And so it's afforded this opportunity to think about um, especially the, the threat, the power difference, the vulnerability that's involved in that relationship um, in ways that you know, are a little bit more difficult when you're talking about maybe the, um, you know, the, national, the national Hurricane Center. You really is focused on a very specific part of the country or um, the IRS, the tax. Like it, it's a little harder to think about those relationships not impossible, and I don't want to say that that's totally unimaginable uh, for the average American, but when you're talking about criminal justice kinds of things, you get to play in some of the nuances of really rich trust relationships with most people. It's just not that difficult to conceptualize. You know, I'm intrigued. We, we've touched at this point uh, in our, our 10 minutes in on, you know, five of the biggest fields of social science research, whether it be legitimacy and confidence and power and all these things. And trust is, is part of that milieu of, of different things that can be, go into explaining what's happening in any particular situation. Can you talk a little bit about how, A, I guess kind of how you identify and, and, and trust acts independently within that, but also how it's also impacted by those other factors that are involved in a situation. Sure. Um, so I will say that I don't. The old uh, saying that when you have a hammer, all the world looks like a nail. Um, I have very much adopted this perspective around trust that the thing that matters is vulnerability. Um, and I, I have not gotten far enough in writing to be able to say anything more than this is an idea in the back of my head. Um, but I've got this thought that a lot of social relationships really are about navigating vulnerability and trying to figure out where it is, where we're not comfortable with it, trying to put it in a place where we are more comfortable. And so my, my answer to your question about how trust factors into all of this is power differentials create this opportunity for vulnerability. Um, authority, legitimacy type situations create this potential for harm. Um, they create both these very specific, you know, will that firearm be misused kinds of vulnerabilities, but also very social, are we moving a society in the direction that we want it to kinds of vulnerabilities. And so the, the thing that I think of, of trust is, is playing across all of these, these different um, concepts or ideas or areas of research that you're just talking about is that vulnerability is a piece of all of that. And the only way that you get out of vulnerability with, contact with social with connection with collaboration the only way that you get out of it is either making someone accept that vulnerability or creating a situation where they feel comfortable with it 
So in the absence of a um, of a more instrumental approach to trying to keep society connected, trust feels like the answer. And I know that that is me looking at the world with that hammer and knowing the whole world is just a bunch of nails waiting for me to, to, to talk through it. But I very much see trust as the, the thing that makes vulnerable situations okay. Well, we've talked about um, criminal justice and conceptualization of trust in that field. Uh, how do you think the conceptualization of the concept of trust differs when we look at other domains? So that would be willingness to accept vulnerability, like you just said, and confidence, and also the measure of it. So my answer is kind of on two levels. Um, one, within those literatures, there definitely is very different takes on what trust looks like. Um, and I do think that those, I like to think of the, um, the, the, the analogy with the elephant where you know, different people are touching kind of different parts of it and saying, no, 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 that's what this is. Um, and I like to think of different literatures in different areas as very much having um, a direct connection to some part of what trust is that's made them really good at understanding that piece, but maybe not needing to catch another part of it. So like I was mentioning with criminal justice. Um, I think that, and this may not quite be the language that field has always used, but that, that vulnerability, that power differential, that potential for harm, that social coordination has really made that literature focus on a very specific part of what that elephant of trust is. Uh, by contrast, the political trust literature has had the benefit of years and years of data measuring kind of the same exact words, right? So they've used the same measures across a lot of different surveys are very similar across a lot of different surveys for a really long time. And so that field tends to think of the data that's sitting in front of it as what trust is. And there is less of a, uh, there's less of a conversation about um, what specifically makes it trust versus confidence. And is it okay that, you know, when we say, are you confident in your government or are you trusting your government? We're going to collapse those does that make sense or are we really asking people different questions? The thing that sits in front of the political trust literature is years of data that I think most other fields are crazy jealous of. But that means that the kinds of things that that field has really developed uh, are less on the conceptualization side and a little bit more on like what's actually moving with it and what's what are the dynamics of um, social life that move with trust. For myself, though, my argument is that because what all of these fields are trying to do is to make sense of a social phenomenon, there's good reason to believe that it is just one elephant. That it isn't the case that we have political trust, which is a different thing than um, trust in criminal justice, which is a different thing than you know family trust. My argument is that all of those are touching parts of this same human phenomenon that is really complicated and looks a little bit different in different contexts, but there's a reason why intuitively it makes sense to us to say this is trust or this isn't trust. There's something common across all of those. And so I do reject the idea that there are different things across those areas. And I'd make the argument that the reason they look different is just that there are different dynamics or dimensions of it that become really important or feel really important as you're studying it from that perspective. Which means, best case scenario is to do as much work in as many of those areas as you can, 
and look for that common thing they all seem to share. And I've really tried to position my career and as I've picked up the Journal of Trust Research in that space of trying to find this, um, what is this thing that all of these areas are kind of catching a piece of that really underlies all of it? And can we use that to better understand new trust relationships? So if, if a relationship becomes a big problem for some reason and we don't have years of research on it, can we use what we know about trust at its really essential state, I guess, or its really essential nature? Uh, can we use what we know about that to step into a new area and make some sense out of it before we have 20 years of research on it? Hmm. So, so just to follow up on that, you're, uh, in your conceptualization here, there's no real distinction between the type of trust that we might have in a, in a familial connection versus that which we might have with an institution like the police department or a local nonprofit, that that's, uh, even though the relationship may be different, uh, that's still the same, uh, same idea and concept of trust for you. I think that there are elements of trust that are the fundamental thing itself and that are the fundamental thing interacting with the context. Um, and I do think that in a lot of approaches to trust, those get a bit conflated. And we talk about how, um, you know, well, that's not what trust looks like here. It looks very different in this context. But I think that it's still possible to separate out um, something that is consistent across areas from the things that have kind of gotten stuck to it because that's what that, that perspective has come from. But before I get myself in trouble with saying that there really is no difference at all, I, I do understand why um, there are important things to know about an institutional relationship that are not necessarily going to play in a familial one. I'm just making the distinction that those differences are not the thing, they're the context. I really liked how you mentioned that it's a social phenomena, it's a human uh, tendency, you know, to either have that trust in somebody else or not. Um, and some of the things that we have discussed earlier, but it was not exactly said in that way, but it can be either rational or routine. So what are some of the things that the practitioners can understand about this and, you know, the changing context, how it changes the conceptualization of trust, whether it's routine or um, rational, and how do they go about building that? Absolutely. Um, it's the reason that I'm, I'm kind of hesitating as I'm talking about it is because I think that this is some of the the gap between the academic approach to trust and the practical one. Um, and so there are definitely people who have been on this show that spend a lot of time really talking about how to bridge those and how to make a coherent picture of what trust, trust is that really reflects the real world. But by far the most common approach to thinking about trust is this very rational, they are worthy of being trusted, therefore I trust them. And so you usually hear a conversation, especially when you're talking to practitioners, there's usually a lot of conversation about find the ways to create the, the trustworthiness that, that really sets you up to be seen as being trustworthy. And so trustworthiness signaling, for example, ends up being a really important part of that literature. The reality of the situation, though, is that even if trust does always start with this very cognitive, very rational, should I trust that other person, we aren't constantly doing that. When we decide whether or not we trust something, 
there's some level of path dependency once you get on that path of I trust them or I don't trust them. Some of that is being kind of just cognitive misers as humans that we just don't want to have to reevaluate it every time. But some of it really is more of this kind of spiral of trust or spiral of distrust where once you kind of decide that you're on the trust side or you're on the distrust side, that actually is going to change how you see the relationship moving forward. In some ways, it's going to change how you invest in the relationship and so maybe create a better one, but it'll also change how you see that relationship and make it look more like it should be a trusting relationship once you're in it. Um, conversations about things like, like trust traps, there's a paper we're working on right now using resilience theory to make the argument that uh, trust and distrust are self-reinforcing stable states that um, an individual could fall into and kind of get stuck in. Um, so that I guess my approach to this idea of rational versus um, more of a routine version of trust is that at some point, trust is probably able to be fairly rational. There's, it may be that that's where the relationship starts. I don't think that's the case for most relationships. But at least conceptually thinking about it, it makes sense to start with this idea that are they worthy of being trusted? Um, there's an argument out there that that's actually backwards, that we decide the level of trust we want and then look for reasons to support it. But whatever the case, that deep connection between trustworthiness and trust, I think, does exist conceptually at phases of a trust relationship. But for the most part, most hours of most days, we are much more in the routine part of it, that we've decided that this is a level of trust we have. And so we don't worry about the connection to the things that should push it around. It just becomes the thing and we rehearse, support, look for reasons to keep that as we just operate in our lives. And that is really hard to deal with empirically. And that is why that is, it's a minority of the trust literature that's really trying to find a way to bridge that. How do we make sense out of it? And it's really important questions and it's really good work there. And it is still not how most of that conversation goes. Yeah, it's, you know, I, um, I probably lean towards qualitative research myself. And so, I, you know, there are these big questions that seem to be, you know, we haven't touched on generalized versus particularized concepts of trust. You know, tr do, do am I a trusting person in general versus do I trust this particular thing here? Uh, and, and I'm wondering, you know, from this perspective here, you know, where you kind of see that research headed in terms of trying to understand perhaps qualitative, perhaps quantitatively, that that concept of how trustworthiness is translated and it's kind of how I think about it. It's you know, you can be trustworthy, but you still have to it still has to translate into trust at some point and we don't quite know how that happens. Where where do you kind of see that research headed at this point? I really appreciate the framing on that question because I'm realizing that I didn't touch the practitioner part of the previous one. So I'll try and kind of work that into to my thought here. Um this, so in signaling trustworthiness, what, what a trustee is trying to do, because really that's the part of this that the trustee controls, right? They, they don't control how trusting the other person is. They don't trust, the, they don't control the context. They don't even really control the way the truster thinks about their vulnerability. They, they might actually control the objective likelihood of harm, but that doesn't necessarily translate to how people think about their vulnerability. 
And so if you're on that trustee side, you are, the thing you really can control is can you present the elements of yourself in a way that um, get across the message to the trustor that you should be trusted? Um, there's a, a movement, I'm calling it a movement, it's probably a, a handful of papers, but I like it and so I want to call it a movement and move it into that direction of this um, trustworthiness, not trust. So we often talk about, you know, how people should trust, you know, um, vaccine developers more, or people should trust government more. But there's a there's a mistake, I think, a social mistake in thinking about the onus being on whether or not they the the trustor trusts, and not whether or not the thing is trustworthy. And so I, I do think that even though we're talking about this potential for breaking the relationship between trust and trustworthiness where it becomes routine. I do think that from the trustee side, the thing to do is to make sure that you are trustworthy and to do everything that you can to ensure that you have and are presenting the characteristics that should suggest to a trustor that you can be trusted. And actually one of the projects I'm working on right now, we are making the argument that the reason why trustworthiness signaling works is if it creates an understanding within the truster that their salient vulnerabilities are protected. And so if you, for example, are a public health department and you spend all of your time talking about how you are competent at managing disease, you understand how they work, you understand how people get exposed to them and how they can protect themselves, and you're going into communities and just touting your competence in doing public health stuff and you are talking to a community whose number one concern about interacting with government is systemic racism your trustworthiness signaling is not directly addressing their key vulnerability and so i think the major place where trustworthiness signaling breaks is when it demonstrates um, you see this in law enforcement as well you see people talking about you know, our officers will absolutely ensure that the only people that they interact with are criminals. And the community is saying, when you decide a person's a criminal, you overreact. The vulnerability we feel is not whether or not you think you can identify a criminal. The vulnerability we feel is that when you interact with somebody who you feel justified in interacting with, you then overreact. And so that it's that trustworthiness signaling won't work because it doesn't speak to the salient vulnerability there. So I'm hoping I've caught a little bit of that previous question and the more recent one, but if I missed part of that. So thinking from the point of view uh, of an individual or an organization that is hoping to build trust, um, would it be fair to assume that they would want to like start with the rational way of getting people to trust them and then kind of turn the scenario in a way that it becomes routine for people to keep trusting them? I think on a conceptual basis, that is the only opportunity that um, a trustee really has. So you can't create a routine of trust, per se. You can create the reasons why trust should flourish in a relationship and then hope that that is something that people start to adopt as being routine. But I do want to pull one piece of this, um, this what I think we're talking about as being rational, and kind of sit and set it a little bit aside of, of the... You know, are you able, do you have benevolence, do you have integrity, can you signal it? Thinking of that very much as a communication strategy, 
you can continue to have interactions with someone in a way that doesn't necessarily have that you know public um, public relations you know themes or things you're trying to say that just kind of humanizes you in a way that develops a relationship that isn't quite rational and looks a little like that routine um, and that is something that uh, a trustee can do and so even if you're dealing with somebody say in a workplace that you there isn't a whole lot of trust in that relationship just constantly having positive human relationships with that person can sometimes start to build that ground that allows those more rational pieces to take hold. Um, and I'm thinking very, I'm very much on an anecdotal kind of sense here in terms of the, the workplace kind of part of it. But you see this in some natural resources stuff where um, really distrusting groups of people start kind of coming around to a natural resource authority that keeps sending a person into that community, coming to community events, they start to meet and they start to get to know them. Um, I can think of a couple papers that have uh, kind of documented this effect of, you know, a distrusting group of people saying, I absolutely hate that state agency. But that one guy's nice. That woman's really great. Like, honestly, I really like them. I really trust them. Their agency's terrible. I, I, don't, I don't like anything about them. But just that, and, and the reason I'm, I'm, I'm trying to break it out of this rational part is because that looks a little more like the routine we're talking about, that you've created this you know, routine patterns of behavior that aren't necessarily saying I should be trusted, but they create a little bit of that routine we're talking about. Uh, but that kind of more, I'm trying to set a trust or level of trust by providing those evidence of trustworthiness, by creating those positive spaces. And that's really all that an, an agency has control over. What happens in the mind of that, that trust or is very much their own. Hmm. Well, so I want to go back to your, your vulnerability stuff here for a moment and, and just, you know, um, I think there's a presumption that the larger the amount of vulnerability that's in play, the more difficult it is to generate trust or the harder it is to, to, to maintain it. And so I'm just thinking, you know, from someone who's thinking from a climate change perspective or someone who's thinking from a, from a law enforcement perspective where lethal force is potentially involved, uh, can you share a little bit about how the just degree of vulnerability impacts the trust development process in the, in those places. Absolutely. Um, and so this is, I'm getting a little bit into speculation based on either projects that I've done or stuff that I've read about vulnerability. And so I do want to be clear that this is very much an open question and something that people interested in trust, the more you can do on this, the better the field will be, because these are really kind of on the edge of what a lot of people who are pushing that trust literature are finding that they just want to develop this part of vulnerability, but then that basis of knowledge isn't behind it. All of that is my big caveat to, I do think that on average, the more vulnerable you are, the more difficult it is to trust. So kind of Roger's classic model of trust thinks of, um, kind of puts the, the risk on the other side. So once you have a level of trust, the amount of it that you need to get to risk-taking behavior in that relationship you need more when that risk is higher. But I think there's every reason to think that it would happen on the other side as well. That if we have, say, a 2 out of 10 in you know, competence on a really low vulnerability, maybe that's enough 
for us to say that we trust them. But if it's a you know, really high vulnerability, we want more, more evidence that we should trust the other person. The other piece of this, though, is that there does seem to be good evidence to believe that humans in vulnerable situations need to find something to make them feel less vulnerable. And so you do find situations where you increase you increase things that look like you're increasing vulnerability. I don't know that I've seen a study yet, and that's not to say it doesn't exist, um, but one that directly increases vulnerability itself and finds this. But you can increase like complexity, for example, and find that when it's too complicated for you to handle, you want to outsource it to someone else. And when you outsource it, you also find increases in the amount of trust that people report. That there's a motivated or compensatory process there where they're saying, I can't handle this. It makes me too vulnerable to think that I need to handle it, so I need to find someone else to deal with it. And I do think that your climate change example in particular is a strong um, is a strong example of that. That if faced with this overwhelming existential dread that feels impossible to deal with, I think most people push that trust into either someone saying ignore it, you know, you should do nothing about this, that's the way we should negate this vulnerability for you, that you do see some higher motivated levels of trust that are going into those relationships because that's a way to negate the vulnerability, as well as on the positive I mean, betraying my politics on the positive side of this um, and thinking about um, moving towards people who are saying this is how to do something about it this is what we should be doing this is it is important and here's how we should do something i think on both sides the extreme existential vulnerability that we're on the edge of feeling is what's pushing us into more trust in those potential other places to negate that vulnerability for us and so i don't think i do think that on you know, all else being equal, more vulnerability, less trust. But I do think that vulnerability is something we really want to get rid of. We really don't want to feel vulnerability in particular. Not necessarily that we want to get rid of the fact that we're vulnerable, but we don't want to feel that we're vulnerable. And the way that we do that might be refusing to trust, but it might be needing to trust. Are there new findings or lines of research within trust literature that you're most excited about? Vulnerability is obviously the big one for me. Um, I, I do think there is a there's a push within that literature. So I three weeks ago was at the the first international network of trust meeting, um, and it's you know a couple. I think it's a just shy, just shy of two hundred people that are you know, spending three days just focused on this whole trust idea in all these different contexts, but trying to make sense of the construct itself. Um, and vulnerability comes up or came up in that meeting often. That was definitely something that people were talking about. You know, what is it? What should it be? You know, one person presents on vulnerability, and it sounds very different from the next presentation on vulnerability. And there's a question of you know, which, which one is it? Does it matter which one? Is it this nebulous thing that we'll never fully handle, never fully kind of nail down? So I do think that the, the vulnerability um, bandwagon, if I will, uh, if you will, um, is growing. Um, and it's a place that I'm very, very excited to see, especially the people who are bringing in vulnerability conversations that are much more developed in other literatures. Um, Public health has done quite a bit thinking of vulnerable groups, 
philosophy has done quite a bit thinking about vulnerability within relationships. Um, and so the work that's not only developing trust vulnerability, but also kind of bringing in this very rich literature around them and from other areas, I think is incredibly fascinating. Because of that, um, I'm very, very interested in the power work that's going on right now, the trust and power work, um, in particular because power and vulnerability are so closely connected and that you know, disempowered groups do tend to be much more vulnerable and feel much more vulnerable. Um, and there is a bit of, uh, I'm going to say, misunderstanding about what power is and the dynamics of power within power differentials in modern life. This idea that like, you'll see it sometimes in policing where police will think of themselves as not the most powerful within the relationship, that it's in fact the public that's more powerful because the public just shows up with a camera and now somebody misunderstands something and you've lost your job. So they very much feel that they are disempowered in those interactions. When it's really hard to conceptualize power in a way that doesn't follow the firearm and the legal deference and the you know, the, the institution itself. And so I do think that making more sense out of what power is and from a sociological perspective that allows it to be a little bit more objective, really, um, making more sense of how that interacts with vulnerability and trust. The network's conversation about trust, I think, is quite fascinating. Um, especially because I think we can move vulnerability around our networks. That I mean, if you're not just talking about a group of people within an organization, you're kind of talking about one individual's kind of psychological field. There are opportunities, I think, to move vulnerability across institutions you're interacting with. And if you feel really vulnerable to one institution, can you create a relationship with another one that negates some of that vulnerability? So kind of advancing this groups of individuals that have a network, the thinking in that into this kind of psychological field of an individual truster on a governance perspective, um, I think is absolutely fascinating. Um, and there is not nearly enough work at this point on what makes trust, high trust, low trust, mistrust, distrust, skepticism, that, that network of ideas um, is increasingly clearer, but there is a lot of work to be done in that space. And I think a lot of good stuff is happening. That's quite exciting. Hmm. I love this idea that, you know, for a long time, right, we just assumed that trust mattered everywhere. And we didn't, you know, you just saw it was trust matters. And now we've researched trust. And now you've realized that to understand trust, vulnerability. So now we have to go study vulnerability so we can understand what trust is, so we can understand what whatever above it is but um I, you know there's a um you kind of throughout this conversation there's been and you mentioned it i think particularly with this concept of power with the police and, and you know, there's a per perception is incredibly important in all of these things and so i just you know to take it back to the practitioner perspective you know when your only thing you can do is to kind of communicate trustworthiness attempt to communicate trustworthiness in a place where you know, uh, in a world where misinformation and perception is harder to manage than ever before, I'm just wondering if there's um, recommendations or, or, or understandings of how that perception uh, is developed that might be useful in this space. Absolutely. 
Um, so I will, I'll tell you the part of this that I feel like I have the, the literature or my own research backing to be able to, to argue is pretty consistent. And then I'll tell you the part of this that I'm pretty confident is true, but I'm speculating on. So the part that I'm pretty confident in is that in order for, you, for anyone to signal trustworthiness, you really need to understand how your signals are coming across to the trustor. And so there really seems to be very little debate on that one that I'm aware of, that you can spend a lot of time saying, this makes me trustworthy. And you really want to hear them tell you, you know, I actually don't care where your degree was from. I care that you have a degree. Or I don't care that you learned all of this in school. You've never done it in the real world. And so there, there is, on a very communication question kind of level, how do you say something that someone else hears you say the way that you mean for it to come across? I think that's a pretty consistent um, understanding within the, the trust literature, and it would suggest that if you want to signal trustworthiness, it needs to be a dialogue. That it can't just be that you're pushing information out. You need to understand if they're hearing it and what, what they're making sense out of, out of what you're saying. I would push that a step further and argue that even though you can have this back and forth of, I'm competent, I have this degree, do you feel that makes me competent? They say, no, I want to see your practical experience. And so you start communicating practical experience. You can get that very right and still not have your trustworthiness signaling address their salient vulnerabilities. And so I would argue that if you really want to get this right and you want to do it effectively and efficiently, um, spend less time asking them, do they understand that you're competent and spend more time understanding what they're worried about that they think you have some relevance to. And then tailor your trustworthiness signaling message to be able to say to them, this is why that vulnerability is protected. And this is why I can show you that I'm the, the type of trustee, the trustee that is going to protect that going into the future. That creates a problem though, because the, it does not answer whose trustworthiness you should be getting. And you can imagine in any context, if, you, if there are two people who disagree about basically anything, the salient vulnerabilities they feel and how to protect them, there's a good chance they're gonna move in different directions. There's a good chance that what you need to do to say, I will protect this vulnerability, makes the other group feel more vulnerable. Because now they have to worry about you protecting something that the first group was worried about. You're almost picking sides across them. And that, I, as I talk to practitioners and talk to people who do this trust stuff on, their, on a day-to-day -day basis, we almost always get to that point in the conversation where they're like, this is great, wonderful, I'd love to signal it based on their vulnerabilities. That makes so much sense. This group doesn't like this group, so how do I do that? How do I make sense out of it? Um, I think the way that you would go, based on the literature I'm aware of, is to suggest that process needs to matter. And so even if the outcome isn't necessarily what either group wants, if you can show that you listen, you care, you'll, in, you'll involve what they're thinking, you know, you'll allow them to, um, you're not biased towards one side or the other, that may give you some benefit. But I do think that it's critical, and this is the part where I'm speculating. Um, I do think that ethical behavior kind of is the, the, um, the grounding 
uh, of what you decide to do when you're in these conflicting, how do I get their trustworthiness and their trustworthiness? Um, I do think that in those kinds of, um, I'm going to need to make a decision. It's continuing to, I'm thinking of governance actors in particular here, but this would be true for business organizations. You need to get the job right. And you're going to get conflicting ideas of what right is from the people that you're interacting with. And that sorting through that ethical behavior, actually doing um, what we understand from a, a field of, of philosophical, ethical types of, of work that is beyond my understanding. And so I'm very much arm waving at it. But that ability to do it right and continue to do it right and make it clear that you do it right may then give you the opportunity to come back to those groups and start having those relationship developing conversations where you're saying, you know, within the context of us being a good ethical organization that is trying to get it right, we want to understand how to protect your vulnerability. And when you push us outside of that ethical behavior, we're going to say no. We're going to say that we can't help you with that. And that, I think, starts to build at least that integrity that trust research often suggests is a really big part of trusting people. And even if they're not necessarily going to do what you want and it's not quite what you were hoping for, if you know that that, that ethics, that integrity underlies everything, that's a direction to move in while you're trying to figure out how to get these competing factions to both see you as trustworthy. Speculation. I really, really, really want to do that research project. About, but I feel pretty confident that there's a, a bridge there from trust of if you just run around after making everyone feel like you are more trustworthy, you're going to move, you're going to move in a million directions at once. And if you oversell that, you may start doing unethical things in the service of protecting the trustworthiness, of, trustworthiness assessments of one group. Losing that basis of ethics kind of at the core of it, I, I think is, let me rephrase that, keeping that basis of ethics at the middle of what you're doing, I think allows you to keep on a track while trying to figure out what these individual, very um, subjective senses of, of, of um, trustworthiness, how to navigate all of them. I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts on trusting the process and not focusing too much on the on the outcome it really um, hit really close home because of my uh, previous experiences working with communities and working with government officials so i really appreciate you sharing that um, are there other resources that you would uh, recommend our listeners explore to learn more about these different conceptualizations of trust that we've discussed today absolutely um i will shamelessly plug the Journal of Trust Research um, and make the argument that what we are trying very hard to do is to um, bring sometimes esoteric, sometimes discipline-specific, but um, approaches to understanding trust to bear on a very common, accessible understanding of what the construct itself is. And so even where we're coming out of um, areas where a practitioner may look at the article and say, you know, that is a level of, that's not the context I'm looking at, or that's not the specific thing that I'm, I'm interested in. What we are hoping is we've created something where every article we've published speaks to that elephant. And it speaks to some piece of it that I would argue 
may not be exactly the side of the elephant you're standing on, but it helps you understand that wider, wider picture. That's why I would absolutely plug the journal. Um, the First International Network of Trust is working hard to do a lot of connections with practitioners as well. And so there may be opportunities in the not too distant future for um, more workshop type things. But just kind of keeping up on its, its website um, and its LinkedIn in particular uh, will give you a, a sense of the kinds of conversations that are, that are happening around this trust literature. And again, paint this like more nuanced picture of what that elephant itself might look like. And then there is a journal. And I'm hoping that at some point someone can check me on the name of this because I think I have this right. I believe it's Behavioral Sciences and Policy. Um, and the journal is trying hard to create practitioner-focused content. With It's not all trust-related, I don't think, if I remember correctly, it's really it's behavioral science and policy more broadly, but they're trying really hard to, to bring in very practitioner-focused pieces. Um, and that may be another good resource for people who want to know more about this stuff. The other piece of it, though, is where you can reach out to people who do this kind of work. Um, I am... I guess I shouldn't say I'm surprised. When you live a construct, there is nothing more fun than talking about that construct. Um, and there, I think, is a lot of opportunity across the FINT network, across that behavioral sciences and policy network, across some of the other groups that, that do this as well, to, to find people that um, really can't think of something they'd rather do for an hour than kind of talk about these trust ideas and try and make sense out of them with someone living them. Thank you. Well, uh, Joe, I'll just ask if you have any uh, anything we haven't touched on that you'd like to share with us today. Not, no. Um, yeah, I feel like I kind of went through... This was just a lot of fun. Um, I really, really enjoy the opportunity. I enjoy the opportunity to talk through these parts of trust, to get some sense of how this, this connects with people who are also working in this field. And so just the structure of your questions and the way you respond, I, can, I really enjoy the, the kind of back and forth that, that created. Um, so I just appreciate the opportunity. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Of course, thank you. Gosh, so that was, uh, I think that was a great way to kind of wrap up our, our series here in terms of interview guests. What do you think? Definitely. And um, I, I mean, thinking back to some of the conversations that we've had prior to this one, and also including this one, um, I think it's safe to say that there are a couple of things um, that uh, can help us understand trust. One is the understanding of vulnerability. There's always going to be that. And also... Um, positive expectations which is i think across the board something that we've heard from every one of our guests yeah it's interesting that that joe kind of provides dr ham provides a different perspective here i think he really focuses more on that vulnerability piece and less on the positive expectations yep. piece which i think is fascinating and you know to juxtapose that with uh, dr mollering in our first episode who so highlighted the positive expectation piece i think we see really here a difference in how we should approach building trust is it a question of uh understanding and 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 uh, engaging with the vulnerability or is it about those positive expectations those are two very different frameworks but i think they can both be very useful in different settings also, initially, when we were talking about um, the application of trust in different fields, 
Um, and I really liked how he said that the application of psychology and understanding trust is so much more um, significant, I guess, um, the way he put it was, uh, to answer some of these questions. So um, I really appreciated his, his views on that. Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, just his background speaks to the different ways that it can be useful. But right. I, I think we've we haven't really touched on that enough is this idea that trust is a psychological construct. You know, there's there's trust in many different spaces, but this idea that it, at, at the heart of the day it comes down to a psychological understanding is a very interesting one. I'm I'm not sure that I totally follow him there. That it's it's that's primarily where it is, but I think it's a it's a useful frame for all of this. But I and I think uh, I'm very intrigued to see where he goes with that vulnerability piece. Mm-hmm moving forward, because it really is, you know, as with everything, I think we've kind of talked this refrain throughout is this idea of perception is so important here. And so when we're dealing with someone, our perception of their vulnerability can be vastly different than their perception of their vulnerability. And that really is, again, that psychological component here that we really need to delve into understanding. You know, and I think it was also helpful, Dr. Ham here brought up this connection of trust and power here, particularly when it comes together with the piece of vulnerability. And, you know, we're going to be talking more about power coming soon, but, you know, that's a little bit more of your domain there. Can you see some of those overlaps between trust and power, Yugasha? Yeah, definitely. I mean, power and trust, I think both of them interact with vulnerability um, and that kind of leads to forming these kind of relationships where you understand the power differentials and still know whether you can trust somebody or place your trust in someone or not, or maybe breed the amount of trust that you want if you're an institution, for example. Um, And trust, the way it functions, and I think power also, the little bit of similarity between the two is that it may work differently when it comes to one agency, but may not work similarly if you're talking about you know another agency or even its sister agency so those distinctions and similarities are um, deeply interesting to me and I think we will be uh, delving a little deeper into it when we move over to our uh, next piece on power absolutely well it's you know there's no doubt that power leads to that vulnerability but I think it's uh, it's very interesting to think about this question of that that rationality piece there, because there's a component here of this this vulnerability that is not entirely rational. We've all we've all been in environments where we're kind of scared, but we're not really sure why we're scared. And I think that's an interesting domain that power can help us answer some of those questions about where that where that feeling of vulnerability comes from. But you know, I think the biggest takeaway for me from from Dr. Ham is really this idea of signaling trustworthiness uh, and how we might need to adapt that in different settings. And, uh, you know, I talked a little bit uh, on a previous episode about how that can feel utilitarian, but I think it's just really uh, important to recognize that trustworthiness does not look the same to everyone and that reality is that we need to signal trustworthiness. There is no inherent trustworthiness. It's something that we portray and that comes out there. But that's kind of my chief takeaway. So that when we're talking about climate change or police reform, we need to we need to listen first, as you mentioned before, the stakeholder analysis piece. We need to pay attention to who we're talking to and have that dictate 
kind of how we how we talk and how we seek to build trust. But how about how about you, Yugashi? Any any big chief takeaways for this one? Well, piggybacking off of what you just said, um, and s- something that Dr. Ham also helped us understand was, I think it also originates from his um, interest in vulnerability, also the the ethics of it, like how important it is to be ethical when it comes to dealing with people, dealing with communities. And uh, um, that is uh, exceptionally important in addition to what you just said about listening to people. Absolutely. It raises all these questions for me that, you know, I think those of us that want to create this just society moving forward, there is that ethical construct that we walk within. But we also see that on the flip side, there are many actors that we might be acting against that do not care about the ethics. And so how to build trust when you're dealing with people that were seeking to undermine you and and do not care about the ethics while you still have to remain in that framework is, is some of the stuff that's most interesting to me. And how do you do that in this society where you're being challenged at every moment? Right. And I also appreciated his um, views on trusting the process and not so much as the outcome. And you need to kind of sell it in that way, I guess. Um, you were talking about uh, tailoring your trustworthiness uh, in, in in a way to like signal the audience that you can, in fact, uh, be trusted. So... Um, I think communicating that to the to the um, uh, to the community is also important, and relatedly, we had also talked about the amount of information and the kind of impact that ha- it has on the ability of others to trust you. Um, so, I can see a lot of um, scope when it comes to future of uh, trust research. Absolutely, there's still plenty to be unpacked here. I think you know, especially in this kind of effective, non-rational space, but there's so much to delve into here. And do you have any kind of uh, uh, final takeaways before we look to power uh, next week, Yugasha? I think that we'll find a lot of different ways in which we'll be able to piece power and trust together. And um, and I'm excited about that. I'm excited about continuing this conversation and keep, you know, uh, I guess not only asking questions, but also trying to find how that affects the way we as a society operate. Absolutely. I mean, these are two of the crucial things, you know, as I think has been mentioned several times on this series, that trust is the the the, the glue that holds our society together and power is the piece that sometimes acts in concert and sometimes acts in opposition to trust. And so it'd be very interesting to juxtapose the two with one another but thank you as always for your time you guys thanks god this is great